Okay, welcome to episode 420, 420 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. And I, I am reminded by the youngest of our participants that episode 420 has special significance and to, that we should all be podcasting in a cloud of smoke. But I... A couple of us boomers who thought we invented drug use have no clue why 420 is synonymous with marijuana use. So, Jordan, I'm going to ask you, what's the connection exactly? Wow, put me on the spot here, Stuart. Thanks. I guess the Time Magazine apparently wrote an article in the early 70s about a group of California high schoolers who every day just smoked at 420 in the afternoon after they got out of class, apparently. And then this is somehow metamorphosized into something that Elon Musk uses to price his acquisition targets. Oh, God. To be less hip than Elon Musk is is really disturbing. But there it is. (laughs) Stuart, it was invented by boomers. Was it really? Close to. It's 1970 in high school. Yeah, you're right. Okay. What can I say? I was on the wrong coast. All right. We are lawyers talking technology, dope, security, privacy, and government. <laughs> and the views that are expressed here already do not reflect those of the our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, you heard from most of them, Paul Rosenzweig, the founder of Red Branch Consulting, Nick Weaver, researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley, and the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies, Jordan Schneider, chief China tech and analyst for the Rhodium Group, and the host of the really excellent China Talk podcast. First time caller, maybe first time listener, Brian Fleming, who's a Recently joined Steptoe's national security practice after time in government and uh, doing national security law. So we're going to be hearing from Brian, hopefully a more moderate voice, but not too dissimilar from mine. And I am Stuart Baker, of course, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Let's jump right into one of the tech and national security issues that has been hot for all of August. And we're going to try to cover stories from all of August. China and chips. The U.S. passed the Chips and Science Act, and now we're dealing with the fallout. Jordan, what's been its impact, or what's it going to be? So the Chips Act, at the end of the day, Congress actually pushed it through, spending, committing to spend $50 billion over the next few years, primarily to support domestic American manufacturing. I think the jury is very much still out on to what extent this is actually going to change the trajectory of American semiconductor manufacturing, build up a more resilient supply chain in the event of some catastrophic conflict in East Asia. One of the more interesting wrinkles, which I think was criminally undercovered in reporting around the CHIPS Act, is the NSTC, which is $11 billion put more on the earlier side of things, as opposed to just, you know, cutting checks to Samsung and TSMC. The idea is to make a national semiconductor technology center to really invest in sort of early stage collaboration in academia and with different sectors of the of the private sector. So I think my general take on the bill is, yes, it's nice, but individual firms like TSMC and Intel spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year on capital investments. So just, you know, $150 billion injection isn't really going to be able to bend the curve and make stuff in America really be competitive with, with manufacturing in East Asia. So, so what the U.S. should really do, which I think the NSTC is banking towards, is investing in the sort of R&D components that really 
give you the most value when it comes to the chips ecosystem. Yeah, I think looking at it, the seams are starting to show and the political compromises are beginning to show. $10 billion of that goes to old, crappy, cheap chip manufacturing because Detroit was really upset that they couldn't get old, crappy, cheap chips. And then another, what, $10 billion is not going to go to get people to onshore stuff, but to onshore research. Nick? As anybody who, however, has been trying to buy stuff for assembly, those lower-end fabs are actually really important. TI is cratering the global economy because they can't seem to produce their buck converters. ST microsystems, the microcontrollers that basically power everything, are so out of stock. And I have a precious hoard of 50 sitting in my corner here for manufacturing. This is actually a underreported story of just how disrupted our current supply chain is. Paul? Yeah, I mean, I think everything Jordan and Nick said is right. I'm actually a little more interested in the what you would call the geopolitical risk factors that are behind all this. You know, apparently this has made the Chinese quite angry. Uh, thus, Good. <laughs> you know, for one thing, <laughs> that's, that's the best thing I've heard about the chips act yet. <laughs> No, 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 I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it certainly is heightening tensions. I think that the, the kind of the other kind of underreported part of this is that it's designed to try and force companies to start making choices between Chinese and American interests. Many of the larger tech companies, both in chip manufacturing and elsewhere, like Amazon and Apple, in terms of device manufacturing, have tried to kind of negotiate both sides of the coin, if you will, I think, you know, to their detriment. But the U.S. government looks like it's going to start putting them to a choice. Take, our, take our money or years. work with the Chinese, but you can't do both. Right. And I'm gu- guessing, for example, that down the road is going to be procurement preferences out of DOD for companies that abandon China or are not at risk yeah. in China. You would put it as a national security risk. And all of that is really fascinating at a geopolitical level. It's also fascinating for the companies, some of whom have so inextricably wound themselves up in China that I don't know what a contingency plan for a post-conflict sanction regime looks like for some of them. It was easy to unwind out of Russia because Russia was a really teeny market and you could quit and not really care. But I shudder if I were a big American company, not just tech, but anywhere, Uh, anywhere in the supply chain that had a lot of investment in China, it will be very, very challenging in the next five years. Great opportunity for Jordan, by the way. Oh, Brian, please. Yeah, I was just going to, just to add to what Paul just said, I think that to me is also one of the most fascinating aspects of this is the the sort of geopolitical choices that are now going to have to be made in the either or dichotomy that's trying to be set up here. And beyond that, the idea that at least I haven't seen too much chatter about this to date, and I'm sort of putting my former government hat on. I'm sort of fascinated to see how this plays out. The What is envisioned is a what seems to be a Commerce Department-led process by which that either or can be adjudicated, essentially, when somebody who receives CHIPS funding wants to expand on certain types of manufacturing in China or per- perhaps elsewhere, 
Are they coming to get waivers? How is that going to be assessed? Is there going to have to be sort of, you know, CFIUS style kind of mitigation agreements that are put in place to deal with all of that? That is a whole aspect of this that I think is really worth watching because you, you know that as time goes on, people are going to want to play both sides of this. They're not going to want to have to be put to a choice of one or the other. And so how companies deal with that and how the bureaucratic structure grows up around that, I think will be fascinating to see. I have real doubts about whether commerce can actually carry out all the regulatory programs that have been unloaded on it, in, especially in this administration, but also in the last. They have not done well with the supply chain regs, and I fear that we're going to see more problems here. There's also talk inside the administration about taking that restriction on who you invest in in China that is now going to be imposed only on chip companies that take the money and broadening it out to any big U.S. investor. And that's a, that's a biting off an enormous amount of regulatory requirements. Jordan. Yeah, just a few points. I mean, first off, Paul, I don't think it's fair to characterize the CHIPS Act as like an escalatory move on America's end. Like, all of East Asia has been in doing industrial policy successfully for the past few decades. And just for America to uh, for China to say, hey, it's not fair. You're helping their companies is like pretty absurd. But uh, yeah, I mean, Stuart, maybe this is a good transition for us to talk about the the recent export controls that have been put on NVIDIA's most advanced GPUs. Yeah, because that's that is yet another escalation or demonstration of the determination of the administration to drive some decoupling in high tech. I was not at all surprised that it happened. I was kind of surprised that there was that it made news. Yeah, maybe if we start off by like Nick just talking about how cool these GPUs are. Oh yeah, <laughs> how, how cool are these GPUs? They don't aren't actually cool. The uh... The uh, water cooling rigs that you need to keep them from melting down are pretty impressive. So the GPUs are actually really interesting technologically because it was sort of by accident, actually, that what happened is they developed these structures that are really good for rendering graphics for games, but they're also really good for any computation of the form for everything element do X. And this turns out to be really, really useful for the take a gazillion bits of data and throw it into your uh, machine learning model. And the they've come to basically dominate the space, the it, modern it, it, can I, AI can I just revolution. Stop, just, just to stop you, this is what we used to call parallel computing. And the GPUs are being used in parallel to, to solve problems? Specifically, it's SIMD parallelism for everything do X. Your computer is what's known as MIMD parallelism. It's doing a gazillion different things all at once, but they're not in lockstep. Doing things in lockstep gets you much, much more compute, but it only works on a few problems. It just happens to be one of those problems is train up a pattern matcher that's a modern neural network. And so these GPUs have come to dominate that space because they really are an order of magnitude or three more efficient than anything else. I do remember when people started making supercomputers by basically lining up a bunch of game computers and, and doing parallel processing. And what's interesting here to, as a very quick detour is the extent to which stuff that is now being presented as, well, this is just obviously cool artificial intelligence is really completely dependent on a particular chip 
design breakthrough and a use of that breakthrough in a particular way. And it uh, wasn't even really a design breakthrough. These GPUs are actually a conceptually fairly simple thing. It's the realization that it can be turned into dense matrix multiply. And that's what it all ends up being is all if, dense if, matrix multiply. If that's the case, how can we possibly hope to keep the Chinese out of this part of AI? They're not the most sophisticated chips. And so you don't get the same benefit from cutting off exports, do you? They are not sophisticated necessarily on the design, but they're very sophisticated on the fab. That okay. the yes. reason why the SIMDs work so well is they're the about the only thing that actually keeps scaling with these smaller and smaller FAPs because mm-hmm. you double the number of transistors, you actually double the usable computing power. And so these chips get their power from still being able to scale with the Moore's law on the transistors while our single processor performance hit a brick wall almost a decade ago. Our computers for doing a single task really aren't that much faster than they were in 2010. Yeah. And now that people are exploiting the ability to bang on computers and flip bits, Intel is actually introducing a firmware that moves us backwards in terms of speed and efficiency. Yeah. And the other thing of note on the GPU front is for the longest time, there was a huge sucking uh, vacuum called the Ethereum cryptocurrency miners that were basically making it impossible. So you couldn't buy a nice graphics card in the past year and a half. They're all going out of business. And so all those who want to buy graphics cards can now actually buy them. So Nick and Stuart, just one more thing on the NVIDIA export control bits. What the US government did was say that Going forward, potentially not even until March of 2023, NVIDIA would no longer be able to sell two of its best performing chips that are used primarily to train AI models into China. However, there is an even there's even another caveat below that as the current disclosure made reference specifically to military end users. So it's not even entirely clear whether that is going to include the types of firms which are buying most of these chips, which are the sort of like Alibaba's and Tencent's of the world that primarily use this compute to generate recommendation algorithms for various sort of more consumer facing products. Brian, I'm curious if you have any <laughs> thoughts on this MEU thing and how far it could potentially be stretched in this case? Yeah, I think the way this all bubbled up is really interesting that as you pointed out, I mean, this was just a, you know, a disclosure in an SEC filing that has now, as you know, Stuart's like, I'm surprised anybody's paying attention. I think this is obviously not the way these things typically come into view. And I think they're quite frankly, from the scuttlebutt that I've heard over the last week or so since this came out, I think there is a little bit of head scratching in the sort of export controls community as to exactly what the Commerce Department is up to here, how far it will go. AMD has come out and acknowledged that they received a similar letter. We believe, or their sources at least, that have indicated that there are other companies who did as well. But how far it's going, where the lines are going to be drawn in terms of cutting off military and user access to these items through the licensing process of the Commerce Department is one thing. But to your point, 
some indications perhaps that sort of true kind of civilian uses might still be preserved, might be licensed. They might be able to continue to ship those to those end users, but it's obviously going to make things a lot more complicated for NVIDIA and others in this space. And so I think there's a lot, there's a lot more questions than answers right now. It's quite kind of opaque as as to precisely what the Commerce Department's up to at, at the moment. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. And just from a sort of strategic policy direction, like Paul was alluding to earlier, doing the sort of half version of this is a really weird way to go. Because what you're risking now is like, okay, like NVIDIA and AMD share price drops considerably thanks to this. NVIDIA has a thousand plus R&D researchers who are based in China, who presumably are all going to start looking for new jobs based on this news. But if you're still going to end up continuing to allow them to sell 90% of the 90% of these GPUs back into China like what was the point of making this making this a big deal in the first place so i think you know from my end it would make sense either to do this sort of whole hog and immediately to get the most sort of like relative national power returns or not do it at all and hope that just keeping the status quo of a more globalized market for GPUs is going to leave america on top in the long run i'm going to offer the view that it was an yeah. unforced error. That they just so so whoever did this, whoever you know signed off, didn't think it was going to resonate like this. They just that's the way that's the way the world works. All right, and what about the corruption scandal in the Chinese chips program? Yes. So corruption scandal, everyone loves a good Chinese corruption scandal. So over the course of July and August, we have seen announcements of super senior Chinese government officials from the Ministry of Information Technology, the folks who were running the big fund, which is China's kind of flagship, uh, you know, a government's guidance vehicle, which is basically like a pot of money run by Beijing used to sort of spur investment in semiconductors. These folks are all, you know, going to jail. And the question to me, and also there there was some really interesting Bloomberg reporting about how this sort of is a reflection of Xi and the state council more generally is disappointment at the progress that the Chinese chip industry has been able to make relative to the, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that have been put in over the past, put into the industry over the past few years. So the big question for me, yes, Stuart, corruption is a thing. It's a thing more in China, but it's definitely going to be, there, there are going to be questions asked in the US context when this money starts to go out the door. I have a little more confidence in the US Commerce Department than a 20 than $100 billion Chinese slush fund where the executors of that money get paid you know, $10,000 a year to do their jobs. But I think the broader thing is that in the Chinese system, I think there is an expectation that, will, that there will be some corruption. But if you don't execute, then there's kind of always this sort of Damocles hanging over your head. Nick. Although let's be honest, none of this corruption, the US still has a lead. After all, Fat Leonard just did a runner yesterday. So we have our own stunning corruption scandals and we can compete with China on that front. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, let's turn to cryptocurrency because there's been some weird developments, some of them regulatory. Brian, can you take us through the tornado cash? sanction and what it has actually meant for the 
uh, the ideology behind cryptocurrency. In early August, we saw our friends at OFAC went after Tornado Cash. And yeah, Nick is gleeful waiting to jump in on this one. As anybody who read his Lawfare post will know, he's relishing this. So it was, this was, I, I think, this is obviously not OFAC's first foray into the crypto space. This is an area of increasing interest for the Treasury Department and for OFAC over the last several years. This is not even the first mixer designation that we've seen from OFAC. There was Blender IO earlier this year. But I think this is certainly the one that's made the biggest splash. And so Tornado Cash and a number of the wallets that are associated with it all identified and blocked under the cyber executive order. And obviously, that puts it essentially makes it illegal other than if authorized by OFAC for US persons to continue to deal with Tornado Cash or these wallets. Now, the interesting thing I think that arose almost immediately is there was, for anybody who plays in the OFAC space or knows anything about them, I think there's, and Nick pointed this out in his piece, they have never seen ends of their authority or their jurisdiction don't frankly exist or aren't sort of clearly intelligible because it's always a case by case. And there's always a some reason or some tie back to the US economy or the US financial system that they can find to, to sort of justify bringing somebody within the scope of their reach. Well, the crypto community obviously did not react very kindly to all of this. And there was much hand-wringing and sort of immediate you know, outcry about well, the fact it, it, that it, this it, is it, unprecedented. Brian, so let me, st- let me stop you there because I, I do think we need to give a little bit more background that explains sure. why they thought this was a, 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 a improper, which is this is the first time, as far as I know, OFAC has sanctioned somebody where you can't actually say who the somebody is. It's This was a protocol, a mechanism for creating and moving cash that was supposed to be unadministered. Anybody could just patch in and the system would automatically do it. And there was no central authority or really even administering authority. And so you don't know exactly when you're dealing with tornado cash and when you aren't, how far you can get from that black hole of a mechanism and still be safe. Nick, Nick, uh, Nick respectfully disagrees, I think. So, so we'll let him chime in first. <laughs> so first of all, there actually was an organ that developed, deployed, and continued to maintain and critically also maintained the user interface that you use. So the web interface is not some nebulous smart contract. Now, the smart contract itself is continuing to run, but It's identified and its pools are identified. So those are specific pools that are targeted. And really, the notion really seems to be, you can't sanction code. No, you're sanctioning an instance of the code that's actively running. And that is what the target of the sanctions was. The organization, which now cease to exist. And the running instances that basically had half a billion dollars worth of dirty North Korean money launder through them. I completely understand. And I think that, you know, OFAC's going to make this stick. There are some questions exactly how far you can get from the black hole, right? And still without falling into its gravitational hole. Because I at some point, Practically everything is one or two or three hops from a tornado cash transaction. 
Right. I think that's one of the interesting questions here because clearly the way OFAC tends to operate, especially in this space, you know, they're looking for the big deterrent effect that they're going to get, which is just going to scare folks away from having anything to do with tor- anything relating to tornado cash, right? And so clearly there are plenty of actors in the space that have taken that approach, which is pretty typical of how we see people react traditionally when it comes to blocking sanctions that are imposed by OFAC. The flip of that, to your point, Stuart, and to the point that Nick was just talking about, I think is the interesting one and is where I think ultimately this the eyes should sort of stay fixed on this down the road, which is where is the principled dividing line? Because at some point it gets too attenuated. How are, When are you dealing with or not dealing with something that is blocked property relating to this tornado cash designation? Is the code enough? Is or to Nick's point, is it just these instances of code? Is the code enough? What you know, what does that look like? There's been a lot written about the idea that the code and code has been in past lawsuits of challenging OFAC and other actions recognized as protected First Amendment activity. So could somebody with the proper standing bring a case that would try to take down this action by saying, no, no, you this goes too far because this is protected and this is beyond the scope of what OFAC is authorized to regulate in this space and in this manner. And so I don't really know who the right party would be to bring that case, quite frankly, whether it's a developer, whether it's somebody that's adversely affected by this. I don't, I'm not sure, but I can guarantee you that there will be probably, it seems from the early rumblings on this, there will be some challenges at some point on this in in federal court. Nick? I actually don't think so, because those who would have standing, that is somebody who put their legitimate money into one of these tornado cash pools, can withdraw it in a way that proves that what they added in was legit. And so that basically means there's really nobody withstanding. And the other thing that it really revealed is just how derp centralized the space is. It isn't actually decentralized in any meaningful way. So the biggest mining pool that processes 30% of all Ethereum transactions dropped any transaction that came from the sanctioned wallets. Meaning they refused to put it into the blockchain, which means you didn't have a transaction. Right. And critically, when you get to about 60 to 70%, you can keep something off forever because 60 to 70% gets enough vote that they can also refuse predecessor blocks that include tornado cash sanctions and would actually have a reason for it because it means they get more money. Yeah, this is a long, the long lesson for the cryptocurrency guys that sometimes East Coast code just wins. <laughs> yes. Also, one of the things that was amusing is there was this griefer with many thousands of dollars worth of Ethereum and Tornado Cash and basically withdrew $200 chunks to send to high profile known cryptocurrency actors who then found themselves locked out of supposedly decentralized exchanges because everybody Ah. uses MetaMask and MetaMask relies on a central authority in FURA, which is US owned and US based. And they had their sensitivity to OFAC turned up a little high. It's a great reminder that there's basically very little actual central or actual decentralized in these supposedly decentralized systems. 
And the only real decentralization that occurs is people wanting to ignore laws on money transmissions and unlicensed stocks and the like. But once they're faced with a regulator that is basically too strong, they've entered the find out stage of OFAC around and find out, and it gets better. So the stablecoin circle froze all Tornado Cash associated stablecoin, showing that circle has the capability to switch to a model where they do KYC on all circle users. Likewise, the stablecoin Tether has that ability, but deliberately did not under the argument of, oh no, we have no US customers at all. Yet every user of Tether is a US or has a huge number of US customers. Are you sure you want to F around with OFAC? So, so I would just add. Sorry, Stuart. I was going to add two more quick things to respond to what Nick said. So number one, agree that finding a plaintiff who has actual standing to bring this case might be tough. Nevertheless, I think there could be a motivated ideologue out there who wants to try to take this thing to court. We'll see what happens. It could get thrown out, motion to dismiss, but you never know. Second, I do think that the idea that we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg for OFAC in this space is a an important point. And Nick, I think, rightly pointed out that a couple of other groups that could be in the crosshairs down the road, miners and bridge protocols, I agree. Those are two areas that we could see some action from OFAC down the road. And to the points Nick was just making, I think it's, in my experience, I think it's unwise to underestimate the the reach of OFAC and the desire that they have to sort of make a point in a very policy-based way in a space that is of high relevance to them at the moment. So I would say, yeah, being being cautious going forward in this space is probably good advice. So August also saw a continued, what I call moral panic over the possibility that the reach of anti-abortion legislatures extend to locating women wherever they went to abortion clinics and prosecuting them. I've been a skeptic of that, but I'll let Paul tell us how that debate is playing out because he just moderated that debate. Yeah, well, it's always good to talk privacy with you, Stuart. I'm surprised, shocked to find you skeptical of privacy advocates' claims. I, I just fell out off my pet dinosaur, you know, uh, last time. So in any event, here's the thing. Uh, you know, the Dobbs decision will resonate in American law in a whole host of dimensions. One of the more surprising, I guess, is the concern that some have that this will be another avenue in which personal data privacy issues will arise to the detriment of individual users. The concern is that things like geolocation data off your cell phone can be readily made available to prosecuting authorities who may take the opportunity to criminalize a woman's choice to have an abortion or alternatively, a woman's choice to go out of state to get an abortion because it's illegal in her own state. The data from that geolocation is classic third-party data that is likely to be available if it were to be sought by the government. Likewise, privacy advocates have expressed concern about things like period tracking applications, which are applications that women use to keep track of their menstrual cycles. Obviously, ceasing 
to have a menstrual cycle would be a significant indicator of pregnancy. And resuming such a cycle would be an indicator of the end of a pregnancy. And one might infer abortion from the timing of those events. It seems clear to me that all of these concerns are just different flavors of traditional privacy advocate concerns about third-party access to data. And to the extent that you do not credit the discretionary judgment of government, you are worried. To the extent, like Stuart, that you think that nobody's going to go after a woman for having an abortion and that the, the prospects of this are extremely odd and rare and unlikely, this is a a, a privacy tempest in a teapot. I think it is fair to say that there's been a lot of noise about this, a lot of public expressions of concern, so much so that a number of a number of tech companies have reacted. For example, Google immediately announced that it would delete abortion patient data around abortion clinics, which will both protect women from having their location near an abortion clinic disclosed, but also quite manifestly prevent the police from finding out the geolocation data of somebody who might have, say, for example, firebombed an abortion clinic. And so, so there, like most technology, it, it kind of cuts I, let me both stop you on ways. that one. Yes, of, of course, it prevents them from finding people who firebombed uh, abortion clinics. But if the abortion clinic is there, it's not illegal to go there. Because as soon as the abortion clinic is made illegal, the abortion clinic is going to sh- shut down. So the likelihood that somebody is actually going to be disadvantaged and certainly prosecuted for going to a legal abortion clinic strikes me as, you know, it's it, it vanishingly rare. I, you know, you said that, in the, you said that in the thing, in the debate we had, Stuart, and I guess the answer, my, my, uh, the privacy advocate's concern is they're not concerned about the location of legal abortion clinics. They're assuming. Well, good I luck with rightly, Google. Is Google going to find those, those, illegal. those illegal abortion clinics and say, we know where they are. And what we're going to do is create this little uh, geocached box around. Oh, them. I think you underestimate Google's ability. I, I bet you they already know where most of the illegal yeah, abortion Stuart, clinics Stuart, are. One of our fugitive slave precedent here that we're going to need to apply in the coming months. Yeah, oh, well, it's going to be a really weird sort of thing. I think the other kind of so so the tech companies are kind of reacting with I think it is fair to say a bit of a moral panic in not wanting to look bad in front Rick of Robin their employees. To the virtue signal. Um it, it is. In the end, I, I think that it's a large degree of your concern about this depends upon your predictive judgment about whether states are going to actually criminalize the actions yep. of women who yep. seek abortions and residents who go out of state are criminalized when they return. I don't think that's likely. But as Jane Bambauer said in our discussion the other day, that's really more a question about the absurdity of criminalizing so many other, so many things, whether it's the possession of, whether it's abortion or any other activity. And and that's really the place of concern. The privacy thing seems to be a, to me, to be a tail that is attached to a rather larger dog that is the broader social 
conflict and yet it over seems abortion. to be doing most of the wagon. It's really interesting. I agree with you. It's as though people don't really want to talk about the main issue, maybe especially on one. Well, I mean, I don't know about that. I think it's resonating quite a bit politically. And I, I think people want to talk about that main issue in as many maybe. different ways I, you, as You may be can. right. I, or it may be side. that privacy groups are engaged in a cynical effort to advance their priorities by tacking them to something where women feel very strongly. Or- um, Could be. Yep. Or- this is showing the tip of a really scary iceberg. So there was just the manual for fog reveal released under FOIA. And this is a company which buys data from people who buy data from people who buy data from APIs that track location. And so technically opt in of millions and millions of people location tracking, and this is being sold to police so that you don't need to even bother getting a subpoena or a geofence warrant. You just look up the data and go from there, and it complete with ad IDs that you can then go back to find the individual persons. Yeah, I completely agree with you. This is location data when it was controlled by Apple and Google. They exploited their monopoly control of that data in part to signal their virtue by saying, well, no, you need a very special form of warrant. In fact, double warrants for what you want if you want that kind of geolocated data. And these guys say, hey, we have that same data and uh, we don't see anything in the law that says we can't give it to you the way we would give it to an advertiser. I so, would not he- lump Apple in the same as Google on this. And that's because they have a very different business model. Apple doesn't want to retain the data at all because their model is they want to sell you shiny things. Oh, I think you're you're underestimating. Apple doesn't want to retain it unless they're in China. I think you're underestimating their enthusiasm for getting into the ad business. That is a very slippery slope that they've tried inching their way down every couple of years, and they quickly retreat from it when they realize that the local maxima is either sell shiny things or sell people's souls. The area between is a bit of a valley of death that Microsoft has tried to navigate and not been doing very good at. So, so Stuart, I'll make one last point on this, which is kind of the opposite side of your privacy advocates hitching themselves to something that women care about which is to say that my perception has been that a lot of the data privacy geolocation stuff has pretty much fallen on deaf ears because the people most disadvantaged by it in terms of government action are people who are roundly condemnable. If you do a tower dump near a bank to find a bank robber, the bank robber has no sympathy at all from anybody outside of the privacy purists who says his privacy becomes my privacy. And so nobody really cares about this. I think what why this is resonating, and it is a fair point, is that it at least theoretically raises the prospect of more universalizing the privacy impingement in a way that is going to, that does generate a lot of emotion amongst a lot of people who do care, both women who want abortions and abortion advocates who are male, and frankly also, On the other side, with people who genuinely believe that they want to use this data to try and eliminate abortions further. So because it's not that they're hitching their privacy interests 
to something that generates sympathy for their own interests is that because the underlying problem of abortion is so resonant and pregnant with moral and ethical and legal issues in America, that hooking the privacy interest to it. Okay, so I'm going to close this with the observation that it's entirely appropriate for episode 420 to say maybe Dobbs will do for location privacy what dope use did for the Fourth Amendment. It it will turn it into something where everybody says, well, that could be me. (laughs) That can't be illegal. (laughs) Okay. Twitter. Mudge is a famous guy in cybersecurity and hacking circles, and he was the chief information security officer at Twitter for at least a couple of years. He's written what's being described as accurately, I think, a whistleblower complaint saying that Twitter's security, well, sucks. And Brian, the part of that discussion that I think we really should talk about is his indication that There are real national security failings on the part of Twitter in terms of its willingness or inability to prevent foreign governments from infiltrating and gaining access to confidential information at Twitter. I don't know what that's going to mean by way of policy, but it was a it was a disturbing part of his very long and in some cases kind of questionable set of claims. Yeah, I think also notable because it comes on the heels of a jury verdict just a couple of weeks before his whistleblower complaint was made public against a former Twitter employee who was found guilty of wire fraud and a few other charges, including acting as an unregistered foreign agent in the US, which is not classic espionage. It's not fair up. It's kind of espionage light because there's no classified. So he was a Saudi spy light, essentially. Light. Yeah, exactly. Because it's user information that he was trading in. And I think the interesting, I think the interesting question that that raises is, and that Mudge kind of brings up in his complaint as well, where he's alluding to this being, this was conduct at issue in the trial that happened years and years ago. This is now Mudge talking about, well, actually 2020, 2021, this was still an issue when I was there. And isn't that sort of appalling and alarming. And he in particular points out a few examples, India, Russia, China, Nigeria, a couple other countries that he cites to as being the beneficiaries of this. I think there's a couple of things going on here in my view. So obviously the case that just got prosecuted to a jury verdict, that was sort of my old colleagues at National Security Division at DOJ who handled that. And to the extent that his complaint is now passed along to them, I'm sure that they will give that a good and thorough review and investigation. The reality, though, is that, you know, I think a lot of this falls to the companies themselves. And so not to single out Twitter, because they're not the only ones who suffer from this. But I think there has to be some incentive there for them to do better in this regard and to try and whether that's government pressure, shareholder pressure, public pressure. I'm not exactly sure what the combination of those factors is that leads to perhaps better vetting, better monitoring more care when it comes to their own employees and giving them access to this and perhaps watching that sensitive personal information go out the door in particular be funneled to parties that we would not want to see that information funneled to. It's a it's kind of a vexing problem. And we've seen this a lot in the historically in sort of the intellectual property economic espionage realm where companies are they want to do better, build bigger fences, have better security, have better protections to prevent their employees from ripping them off blind and in particular giving them giving that information to competitors or foreign governments. But 
striking the right balance to incentivize that in the proper way and to is really difficult in my experience. And so I think this kind of captures some of that. And it's sort of where do you need to light the light the fires, not to double down on our 420 theme in the right places to get people to act in the way that you want them to act to to take the steps necessary to protect sensitive data. I read Mudge's complaint, soup to nuts. And first off, he's a brilliant guy, right? He's one of the ur hackers. He knows as much, if not more about this stuff than almost anybody I've ever had the pleasure to meet. But I have to say that a lot of what he wrote about, not the espionage stuff, but the what looked a lot like the report of every CISO who hasn't gotten enough money from the board in every company in America. And, you know, we can talk at length about how the current structures don't actually incentivize companies to, to internalize the external costs that are imposed by their insecurity. We've all, I've written about it, you've written about it. It's a problem. It's a real problem. But I kind of have a little bit of sympathy for Twitter in that at least to some degree, I'm not sure that what he wrote about is anything more than, you know, we can't pay for well, everything. Well, but Twitter has that problem Peter, in, yeah. in, a, in a way that Facebook and Google and Microsoft do not. They don't have the money. Exactly. They're not, a, right. they're so, not the winners here. They're not so the rich guys. They're, they're, for them, when you say we should keep foreign spies out of our infrastructure, other people would say, other companies in that a group would say, of course, we'll spend what it takes to do it. And I think Twitter is going to say, really, why do, Why are we required to do that? Show me why I have to do it. I, I, and so I do think they deserve to be the poster child for this, this problem. And I, to my mind, the only incentives that are going to work are government incentives. We might need legislation. Certainly, NSD should be asking the question, what are our authorities to go in and insist on certain kinds of insider threat vetting in companies who control data about everybody in America. Yeah, that's a fascinating question and one that I know the NSD folks, I could say, would probably throw their hands up there and probably say, well, we would love to, but we can't. Yeah, because we got got 600 people at Mar-a-Lago. We don't have time to do anything else. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about China in D.C. because we've talked a lot about how China's reacting to uh, the U.S. initiatives. U.S. legislators and regulators continue to be really unhappy about the two biggest domestic U.S. successes by by native Chinese companies, which is TikTok and DJI. Brian, TikTok has been on the cusp of something bad happening to it for really since Years. halfway through the administration, the Trump administration, and nothing really has. Do you think that there's a change in the climate that's actually going to result in TikTok being regulated or kicked out of the U.S. market? Yeah, not well, not necessarily, but I do think that the, the wind is perhaps blowing slightly differently with regard to this one of late. And as you noted, this is one that was a, really a hot topic second half of the Trump administration with the executive order and all the big pronouncements that were made about banning TikTok and all the rest of it. And it was obviously well known that CFIUS was looking into this and that there was going to be a sale and the data was going to be sort of onshore or access was going to be cut off to, in, to China or in China to the to TikTok user data. And then it just all kind of quietly 
went away after January 2021. And I foolishly perhaps thought that this would just get resolved behind the scenes with the temperature lowered on the whole situation. But that is not the case. And to your point, it's been kind of lingering and now seems to have popped up again as a topic of great interest on the Hill. A lot of high profile folks who are kind of making comments about this and the and of course the advisory that was just issued by the house about a cyber advisory and TikTok of course is taking issue with that and trying to sort of fight lean forward in the fight as opposed to sort of let you know be dictated to here which is perhaps what was happening 2 3 years ago so i don't quite i frankly don't quite know where this all ends up i think at the end of the day and i know that this was talked about on the program not that long ago the idea that continued access to user data in China from China has not been solved, it seems. I don't really know how that's ever going to be palatable to the powers that be in DC with Incipius, et cetera. So I'm not quite sure how that's going to get resolved. If that hasn't, if there is no real answer there, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I still have a hard time believing TikTok's going to get shut down, but I, I, I just don't know. Yeah. So the, I, certainly the journalists are looking for anti-TikTok stories. Uh, there was a story about the Chinese government asking for a stealth propaganda account on TikTok, which may yeah. have been a little overblown. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, Stuart. I mean, shout out to the patriotic American uh, who, sitting who? somewhere in TikTok offices who decided to leak that one because that, you know, <laughs> this is the exact sort of thing which probably already is happening and will continue to happen in the coming years unless there are sort of serious new regulatory requirements on TikTok, which are enforceable. I mean, TikTok for years now has been promising saying, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to move our data. They're going to say, oh, yeah, we don't have any Chinese engineers who can see the code base. And, and they've been proved, oh, you know, yeah. over and over again, like they, they would literally like square do sworn congressional testimony only for six months later. There are claims that they're using to put forward to Ashwage legislators be proven bunk. So I think it, it, it's really interesting. I'm not entirely sure about the causation of why now. Maybe everyone's just like all pumped up after passing Yusika that they feel like this is the moment to do more China stuff. Nick, what do you think about? Uh, how do you say 702 in Mandarin? <laughs> yeah. So that meaning they they the Chinese government has already got full authority to sweep up all this data if they think it serves their national security purposes and what Yeah, it's the it's the national security law. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's the same reason why I love my DJI, but I would never want it in a place where I care that the Chinese government knew where I flew it. So Klon Kitchen, who's been on this program from time to time, talked about how DJI is getting much more sophisticated in its lobbying activities. They're, one suspects, flying police departments, police representatives out to talk to their local congressmen about how great drones are for law enforcement. And then about halfway through, the DJI representative who's been buried in the, the group says, oh, and I want to tell you why the efforts to regulate it from a national security point of view are such a bad idea. And I think that's what's going on here in part with TikTok as well. They have gone and hired sophisticated lobbyists and they are running a sophisticated American corporate style lobbying campaign, which makes it harder to casually build a coalition to regulate Chinese companies further. So that, I think, at least DJI and TikTok are going to make, they're going to 
fight this building to building, hand to hand, and make it really make the administration or the congressional coalition that wants to do something here fight for every vote. Yeah, I'm getting push notifications on a daily basis saying TikTok is hiring for uh, you know DC policy managers. So you know, okay, check, well, check on LinkedIn you know, if you for, want to fight this fight. <laughs> exactly <laughs> for the for those who listen to the uh, podcast for clues about their future in policy and cybersecurity, that's a a good hint. They should try and steal people from <laughs> Huawei. Yep, that's probably right. Uh, okay, if last they, if they big fail, topic. Paul. On. One one big topic: content regulation. Kiwi Farms, which I'd never heard of until last week, was kicked off of Cloudflare services. Cloudflare is notoriously reluctant to do that. They don't think it's their job. They think they're just an infrastructure provider and they shouldn't be deciding who can speak. But they were subject to immense pressure to get Kiwi Farms off because Kiwi Farms is apparently an equal opportunity doxer and organizer of swatting efforts. And the CEO of Cloudflare finally said, no, I think this is too dangerous for us to be serving. And they kicked them off. Paul, I am... I'm very uncomfortable with these things because I don't believe I don't know I don't know that Kiwi Farms has ever been adjudicated to be evil. If they're so evil, why can't somebody prosecute uh, people who are using this service? And if they can't prosecute them, why should I rely on Taylor Lorenz of the Washington Post, who's just a notorious crybaby, to tell me that these are the she wasn't no, she wasn't right. their this source. No, she's, she, I mean, she's, she, 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 I mean, she's, she's going after the lips of TikTok. But but you know this is a this is a yeah, this no. is a left-organized lynching mob. No, it isn't. And maybe these guys deserve it. No, this no, not, not this Stuart. one, Stuart. Maybe, maybe – I mean, Kiwi Farms I'd heard of beforehand is genuinely, genuinely about creating danger. They've – by their own boasting, they've led to at least three suicides. They have a, a – they've – much of their work has had – takedowns on direct misinformation stuff about children's hospitals, doing hysterectomies on 10-year-olds. They have a very strong anti-LGBTQ bias, which is, of course, why this kind of resonates in the liberal conservative thing. But they also swatted, apparently, Marjorie Taylor Greene, making her, having her call for their deplatforming as well, which yeah, makes it bipartisan, is, at least. I, I, yeah, my mind just explodes at the idea that Marjorie Taylor Greene and the LGBTQ advocates are on the same side on this one. But there it is. That's the truth. Cloudflare does so, so, but, but, uh, want to hold itself out as being different from platforms because they think of themselves as an infrastructure provider like bandwidth pro- creators and things like that. I'm generally skeptical of being able to draw that line between them and others. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like drawing the line between, you know, the people who hang the fiber optics and the people who put content through them. You can cut off the fiber optics to somebody as well. If what does concern me, and I think that this is very much the case, is that at least the traditional content moderation groups like Facebook and Twitter are somewhat transparent about what they do and have pretty well-articulated standards. We can discuss whether they live up to them at all, but we can only do that because, uh, because they publish them. Cloudflare's abuse policy is, yeah, we know it when we see it. 
and their transparency reports have absolutely nothing about any other content moderation they've done. The only ones we know they've done are Daily Stormer, 8chan, and now Kiwi Farm. And that's only because they've said that. Maybe those are the only three. But but they made it pretty clear they don't want to do, they so don't want to do this. About, they, they don't uh, think they should be doing this. Right. They don't. So I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. And so I'd like more transparency for accountability. But I'm not that uncomfortable with a private company's decision to not provide service. Oh, and by the way, just so you don't go crazy on them, the, they then started to use a DNS server out of Russia. And the Russian company just deplatformed yeah. them uh, as well. Today. I would like to add a few things. First of all, Cloudflare is not a security company. They are a content delivery network. Every image from Kiwi Farms was cached on Cloudflare servers and provided by Cloudflare. Kiwi Farms as an institution was literally urinating on the Brandenburg test for years. Their goal is to incite imminent lawless action. The Cloudflare has actually deplatformed at least one sex work organization as well. And Cloudflare has the power as a censor only because they are the provider of last resort. There's a reason why those of us in the security business call them crime flare. They basically specialize in having abuse procedures where they ignore. So the abuse reporting mechanism for them, they forward to the provider. They basically deliberately make their abuse system hard to work. And what it really comes down to is that Kiwi Farms started going after not LGBT individuals, but Cloudflare customers who were thinking of switching because Cloudflare's reputation really is pretty dismal in terms of, yeah, the CEO is pro-Nazi. And so uh, let, me, let me stop you. They've, you've gave a great explanation of why you think Kiwi Farms is bad. But if they've been urinating on Brandenburg, they should have been prosecuted and prosecutable. It's uh, very it, hard for the police to prosecute these decentralized stochastic terrorist networks. So first of all, you need to get the data from Kiwi Farms as to how who the actual individuals are. These are all pseudonymous, very little tracing to individuals. The police have historically had a very hard time even knowing what to do in these cases. And the guy in charge has apparently so fled it, to Serbia because he's been under some various legal clouds lately. So instead of relying on people who have processes for determining facts, we're going to decide that we want people off the internet because there's somebody, we don't know how many, but some people are doing things that cause harm, although the harm, anybody can brag they caused a suicide. Uh, uh, and, and, this is pretty well documented that they've... Okay. This is... This yes, is, all those things are bad things, and they are probably all prosecutable if we cared enough. And instead, we're relying on basically a bunch of trans activists to assemble the facts and then tell us these are the only facts you need, even though they are not actually, they haven't made these findings. Stuart, they, they're just stories. Stuart, this is... Nah, it, it, it's, it's more than that. I mean, 
Would you no, have them no, on this show, I, Stuart? I, but, Can you yeah. Well, yeah, no, I, so, so, and you have no more information than, you have far less information than Cloudflare at this point. Remain continuously puzzled by your objection to private sector actors responding to because we know that this is to make it impossible for people to speak. No, that we don't it's like. not. Cloud, uh, Kiwi no, Farms was an anti-free so. speech organization. They deliberately targeted trans individuals. And there is a documented history of trans and non-binary folks online deliberately keeping a low profile because they did not want to show up on Kiwi Farms radar. There are reporters who did not report on Kiwi Farms because the reporters were afraid of what would happen. Fair enough. I look. I don't want to carry water for Kiwi Farms. You are but I am, because but the problem I is, am. is <laughs> there are plenty of competitors to Cloudflare. It is every one of them is a private actor with sets of acceptable and non-acceptable usage. And they really are interchangeable. It's not like Twitter where if you're booted off Twitter, you only have truth derpal or whatever it is. That if you're booted off Cloudflare, you can use Akamai. You can use Fastly. You can use these Russian outfits. There are many CDN providers available. But the your, your, your only position, reason your- why Cloudflare is a point of pressure for something like Kiwi Farms is because everybody else has years ago decided that Kiwi Farms and 8chan and Daily Stormer are not worth hosting and not worth profiting from because you end up losing money because, well, just as somebody can go elsewhere that your customers can too. And that was the real reason why Cloudflare stopped is their customers were getting threatened by Kiwi Farms for going, hey, let's go with somebody else. So I here's what I'm hearing. Uh, Stuart, I think your argument is actually much stronger with respect to Twitter and maybe Facebook who are not quite monopolists, but really do have a corner on the market. As Nick points out, Cloudflare is just one of dozens, if not hundreds. The private market seems to be at work here. And as a good conservative, you ought to be in favor of private. Yeah, I hear you. I just am very troubled by the idea that we are basically saying we can't find the people who are actually doing the doxing and swatting and punish them. And we can't punish Kiwi Farms, which allows them to organize on its forum. Uh, so instead, we should go punish some third party for doing business with them. I just, it seems to me that the better place to put our effort is the to companies find who content who you provide are companies that you're effectively supporting. And basically, what it really comes down to is Cloudflare CEO is a Nazi lover. He likes supporting Nazis. He gets Angst no, I, I'm sorry. Daily I, I, Storm. I, I know Matt Prince. I, oh, I've, come I've, de- on. I, I've he, debated him. <clears throat> he is an old style internet hippie. He believes in what everybody believed about the internet in 1995. Uh, I, and, at this and point, he is no, he's he's basically up in the trying to tie Elon Musk for cratering your company by being a dumb CEO. All right, I. Uh, 
fine. I hear you. Quickly tell us. We've got four or five quick hits. One of them is the one of them is the U.S. EU data fight, which almost tipped over into disaster and is that much closer, but hasn't yet. Well, the EU said to Facebook, you know, we've got all these privacy rules and you're not abiding by them and we're going to start fighting you and be mean to you. And Facebook said, fine, we'll yeah. leave. And the EU, I mean, uh, the EU said, well, yeah, let's yeah, talk so about several, this several, And so they kicked the can down the road. Uh, very Ireland EU had to refer its decision several Europe- to the European data protection agencies, several of which raised objections and said, we think this should go to the European data protection supervisor, which means that it's now kicked the can is kicked down the road for at least a couple of months. A very yes. European and In the solution. meantime, the US and the EU are likely to, well, may negotiate a solution or at least a pretend solution, which they will ratify and which will immediately be challenged in court. Paul, you are... If you want to hear more about that, tune into the Federalist Society's Web webinar tomorrow at noon, where Stuart exactly, will be on exactly. again. And we will not be defending or attacking Matthew Prince, which I'm sure everybody will be no. glad to hear. Okay. There's a story about dad whose photograph of his son's private parts for a doctor ended up with him losing his phone number and access to all of his two-factor authentication. Uh, the New York Times thinks that he was done wrong mostly by algorithms and an uncaring Google bureaucracy. You agree? Only about the uncaring Google bureaucracy. Everything else worked exactly as it was supposed to. Multiple photos were flagged by Google automatic tools when uploaded to Google services. They were passed to human review. Human review decided they should be passed to the San Francisco Police Department The San Francisco Police Department investigated. It was concluded to be benign, no charges filed, but the Google account was suspended and Google just goes, "Ah, we ain't creating the account back. It was nuked, yeah, as far as I can tell, and nuked in a profound way because you can't get into any of your accounts if you don't have your phone number because that's how they send you the two-factor authentication. Well, root email is more important in this case because- well, That's right. And uh, so th- this guy lost Gmail, he lost Google Fi, a- and lost access to all of his data, even after the investigators said, yeah, this is not a problem. Your, our investigation is closed and we're not investigating you. Google seems to have said, yeah, we don't care. We make the rules. Yeah. And the only thing really wrong in this story is that, yeah, Google really should give the guy's account back. And this has happened a couple of times. But the New York Times framing of, oh my God, algorithms was just, come on, bull. This was all human reviewed. So the other thing that I noticed in this story is that all of this disaster occurred with his Google stuff, but his wife had apparently uh, uploaded it onto her Apple phone. And Apple didn't even notice. Um, Apple does not actually scan a lot of stuff that gets uploaded, and a lot of stuff doesn't actually get uploaded. That with your Apple devices, a lot more data just stays local because, truth be told, Apple doesn't want to have the liability of holding customer data. They, they, do, they don't want to know. If there's child porn being traded on Apple phones, they don't want to know about it, and they've managed to give themselves deniability. 
And uh, app privacy activists freak out when Apple proposes adding scanning for known CSAM images to iMessage and the privacy activists all freaked out. So uh, while we're on porn, there is a a couple of child porn related stories. One about Visa running some risks of being held liable for having monetized child porn on Pornhub. A, A second story about how Twitter thought that it ought to get into the OnlyFans type, you know, quasi porn and adult porn business only to discover that would highlight how big a child porn problem it had. Thoughts on those stories? Does Twitter really have a child porn problem? They don't, but they would. But first of all, first thought, please don't call it that anymore. It is child sexual abuse material, CCM. This stuff is... It is a serious problem. The, it is. I'm not sure that you make it worse by calling it, make it to, that you should call it CSAM as opposed to child porn because CSAM is just a bureaucratic no, it's, a set of initials. It isn't because this is pornography has positive connotations. This is all sexual abuse material. And yeah, I, I hear you. I, I, that seems a little politically correct to me, but uh, I understand what not, people are not, trying to do. Not if you talk to anybody who works in that field. They do it not out of political correctness, but to keep themselves from vomiting. The more interesting one is the MindGeek Visa lawsuit and Visa MasterCard cutting off MindGeek. So this is Pornhub. And the part that survived a motion to dismiss was claims that Visa was sufficiently involved in MindGeek's Pornhub's monetization of CSAM was sufficiently argued in the amended complaint to withstand a motion to dismiss. We don't know if Visa will end up being on the hook liability-wise, but it got over the first hurdle. And, and that seemingly, means discovery, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a nightmare. Seemingly coincidentally, Visa and MasterCard both dropped MindGeek's advertising platform, even though MindGeek allegedly cleaned up their act sufficiently after this gal got reported at the New York Times. And this is good. This is going to be a big deal for MindGeek and for Pornhub and their 95% control of the, the pornography market. So this is going to be a big deal all around, although exactly when the consequences will become evident in the market is less clear. All right. Two things that to, just to update people, we talked about how Google really got seriously dinged by Republicans who seem to have the receipts on their sending only Republican emails to spam folders. Oh, come order- on, Stuart. It turned out the Republicans weren't actually sending the mail right and actually had trained their own spam filters to filter it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They, 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 nobody else, not Hotmail, not AOL, nobody else was sending that stuff to spam at rates that differentiated between Democrats and Republicans. And, and that's the kind of talking point that the left puts out to try to mock the the notion that there is discrimination in Silicon Valley against Republicans. I'm quite confident that the people who saw that at Google were quite happy to have it continue until they got caught doing it. And they did get caught doing it. And their response was to say, 
oh, well, maybe we should uh, go to the FEC and ask for permission just not to apply our spam rules. That'll make everybody mad at the Republicans for raising this issue. But the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, seems to have said, yeah, okay, go ahead and do it that way. Rubio didn't set up DKIM. And if you're sending spam, you better set up DKIM or you're going to get blackholed by Google. It doesn't matter what email you're sending these days. If you aren't using DKIM, you're going to be in trouble. Then why is it that Microsoft Hotmail didn't differentiate? Because Microsoft wasn't using DKIM as a primary mandate. Google effectively is these days. Okay. They never said that, as far as I know, in public when they were asked about this. So I'm going to say that's an unproven accusation at this point. And then last... Brian Krebs has finally, after months of being sued for having run a story that turned out was almost certainly based on a report given to him by the actual hacker claiming that there had been a a, a breach at Ubiquity and not taking down the story, even after the guy who was his source was indicted, has finally taken it down, probably as a settlement of the lawsuit that Ubiquity brought, claiming that <clears throat> he had irresponsibly engaged in libel. I am, I'm puzzled why he held out so very long. They didn't sue him for a lot of money, $425,000. My guess is they just wanted him to take it down and that he has settled the lawsuit by doing this. But I really cannot quite understand why it took him months and months to finally make that correction. but Probably because it was, my bet is advice from his lawyer that you don't take it down until you have a settlement agreement because I don't know about well, you, enough, but a $400,000 judgment against me would wipe me out. Yes, I, I, but 400000 if you are ubiquity, $400,000 is not paying for your lawyers. No, uh, but if you're Brian Krebs, it's putting you in the bankruptcy house. Yes, but, this, but when you bring a lawsuit for that amount of money, it's not that you want the money. It's that you want the victory. And he could have given them the victory the day they filed that lawsuit. Not okay. necessarily. Not unless they were willing to agree. All he's done is take it down and apologize in a very cursory fashion. So unless somehow he managed to make the prospect of litigating against a one-man shop so deterring that they decided they couldn't afford to continue on, I think that deal should have been available right from the start. Okay. Thanks to Paul, to Nick, to Jordan, and to Brian for joining us. Don't forget your questions, comments, and feedback. Go to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Give us a rating. Leave a comment. We'll read the uh, the most entertaining and the, especially the most entertainingly abusive on the air. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 420 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Steptoe.